Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he has predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the purpose of his glorious grace, with which we, he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have the redemption through his blood and the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that he who were, we who were the first to hope in Christ may, might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. It's good to see everybody this morning, and uh, I see that some probably didn't make it this morning because they're recovering from the opening of college football yesterday, And uh, but thank you for those of you who persevered for the sake of Jesus. You didn't allow yourself to be overly persecuted by college football, and you made it to church this morning. Hey, uh, as we start, I just wanted to give you a quick update. Um, so this week... Uh, the uh, contract and everything with Pineapple Cove closed. It's done. Uh, money is in the bank. The thing is sold. And uh, we are now moving forward. And uh, it went off without a hitch. And we are so thankful for that. Um, he is not here. He's probably someplace recovering. Uh, the reason why this thing really went off, folks, we owe a huge thank you to uh, Bob Jensen. And uh, he's not here. I don't know. He probably took a last minute cruise or something just to recover. I don't know what it was. But uh, Bob has just exerted, it's not an understatement, guys, uh, to say hundreds of hours on this project. He has ushered this thing through. We had so many, so many obstacles that would come up and this and that. And, and I'm gonna tell you something, Bob just did a phenomenal job uh, representing and protecting our church and making sure that we got uh, the right deal and that we weren't taking advantage of and that everything worked out and uh, just, he did a fantastic job. And uh, cause you know, once you start getting lawyers involved in things, it gets really complicated. It's not Pineapple Cove are wonderful people, but lawyers, we all know about lawyers, right? Those of you who are lawyers, I apologize. You're the exceptions to the rules, but uh, they, man, when you get the lawyers involved, it gets complicated. And so Bob was the guy who just, uh, but let me just say it like this. Don't ever play poker with Bob Jensen, okay? I'm just saying, don't play poker with that guy, man. He knows how to negotiate and not reveal his cards. Really, really appreciate what Bob did there. Well, listen, we're the last week of our sermon, su summer series entitled Wonderful Words, right? Wonderful Words. And the last word that we're looking at is sovereignty. We began it last week and we defined sovereignty as God's absolute right and power to do and whatever he decides to do because he is the king of everything, sitting on the throne, ruling over all the creation. 
And so with this word and understanding this idea of sovereignty, we saw that there were some important qualities attached to it, like majesty, right? And omnipotence and immutability and eternality, that all of these aspects of God and who he is are attached to this exercise of absolute power and the right that he has alone to do whatever it is he has decided to do. But when you think about that definition of sovereignty, God has the ability and the right to do whatever he decides to do. There is no moral or emotional connotation to that definition. And so we ended last week by looking at a word that is always associated with sovereignty or often associated with sovereignty. It's one of those words that starts with the letter P. It's the word providence. Providence is God's sovereignty and the pursuit of wise and good purposes. When you read older writers, especially from previous centuries, whenever they were wanting to talk about God's sovereignty, more often than not, they would choose this word providence because providence is how we as individuals on an everyday practical basis interact with God's sovereignty. So even this week, Providence tells us that God was sovereign over that horrible hurricane that did so much damage to Louisiana and in the deaths in New York and New Jersey and Pennsylvania and everything in that storm, God was sovereign. In his providence, he was working in and through and around that storm to bring about his good and wise purposes and ends, okay? Was it painful? Yes. You know, God's providence, if you think about that word providence, it's based off of our word to provide, right? Providence means God provides everything that is necessary to bring about his desired outcome. And most of the time, for most of us in our lives, that providence is very pleasant, right? Some of you ate a nice breakfast this morning, okay? And that was pleasant. That's because of God's providence. You worked a job or you enjoyed your retirement. You know, when it finally cools down in here, it's a little warm this morning, we will, we will enjoy the providence of God in that he has, uh, you know, provided for us air conditioning and the skills to bring this all up. That's God's providence. It's often pleasant. God's providence, though, is also at times painful, There can be a painful aspect to God's providence. And this storm this week is an example where God's providence can include pain, yet because of who God is, we are assured that even in those painful examples of God's providence, it is ultimately working for a wise and good end that will bring about good in the lives of God's people and will bring about good for his kingdom and glory to his name. So that was last week. God's sovereignty and providence. Now we're going to go to a second word that begins with the letter P that is often associated with God's sovereignty, and that is the word predestination. Predestination. So we're going to end this this series dealing with God's sovereignty and predestination. I basically kicked the hardest, most controversial word to the weekend where we would have a lower attendance. That's what I did, okay? With it being Labor Day weekend. Um, hey, listen, if, if providence is associated and relates to our circumstances, predestination re- and God's sovereignty and, and predestination relates to our salvation. 
And let me tell you something. What I hope you you come to understand this morning is that this word predestination should not be a word that divides us or that we are afraid of or that we just simply pretend it doesn't exist and we go on our merry way as Christians ignoring that difficult word predestination. Instead, I want you to see it for the wonderful word that it actually is that it is a word that has great practical value to us, as you're going to see at the end of the message, that you will realize that it is God's sovereignty in predestination that gives us hope. Why? Because it is in predestination that God is saving us despite ourselves. Predestination is God saving us, sanctifying us in spite of ourselves. That's what predestination, when you boil it down to it, that's what's going on here, right? Predestination is God saving us despite ourselves. And this passage, which I realized as I was coming up, I have not preached this passage since um, May of 1998. So it has been, what is that, 23 years since I have come to this passage. And by the way, It was the last message I gave to the church where I had resigned. Um, I was a Southern Baptist pastor at the time. I had migrated from independent to Southern Baptist and my theology changed during that time. And so I knew that I, you know, the church had, we had gone from 100 to 400 people. The church was big, but I was not the pastor they had called. My theology had changed. And I knew that it would be too disruptive to that church to preach what I, on a regular basis, what I believed. And, uh, and so I ended up resigning from that church. But on my way out, I preached Ephesians chapter one. Now you wanna hear something that's neat, God's providence. Here's God's providence. Four months, three, four, three, four months later, Catherine and I are still looking for a new church up in the Orange Park area outside of Jacksonville. We moved up there. We'd been visiting some churches. It was a church plant we'd gotten involved with, but we decided, Catherine decided actually, because we had kids and they, they didn't have much of a children's ministry. And she says, can we just check out some other churches to see about a children's ministry? And I said, oh, all right, you know. And, and so we were going to check out a church and I took a wrong turn. I missed my, 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 my turn. And I'm not gonna say why I missed it, but just to say I was distracted. And uh, I, went, I had to go four miles out of my way And I turned down a road and I drove by this church called Pinewood Presbyterian Church. And I had heard about it at work. I was doing a Bible study at work. And this lady kept saying, you sound just like our pastor. And I wasn't taking that as a compliment because I didn't think, you know, Presbyterian, oh, gee, are you kidding me? Do you know what those guys believe? You know, because all I knew was what was in the headlines about another Presbyterian denomination. But we, we, we ended up going in there and said, well, you know, when, when are we ever going to have a chance? Let's just do it. And then we'll go back to the other church. And that week, Rod preached on Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. And the whole sermon, Catherine is poking me saying, he's preaching your sermon. He's preaching your sermon. And I'm going, amen, amen, amen. I'm amen and throughout the whole sermon because I'm Baptist, right? And at the end, those of you who know Rod, at the end of that service, as we're leaving, I'm shaking hands and he's shaking hands and he shakes my hand and he goes, hi, I'm Rod Whited and you must be a Baptist, right? Because <laughs> you know, Catherine will hold it, like, you're the only one saying amen. I don't think they say amen in this church, you know, that kind of thing. Which by the way, you are free to say amen in our church, all right? Happy to do that. All right. 
So that is where we are. I haven't been in this passage in 20, however many years. And coming back to it this morning, I want us to basically approach it by answering three very important questions. Three very important questions. Let's start with the big picture and answer, what is God doing? What is God doing? You know, God had a purpose in creating this world and creating humanity in his image, didn't he? Uh, We are designed to enjoy an eternal love relationship with God. We are created in his image, and it's intended for us to enjoy God's presence and, and worship him and glorify him forever. But sin, sin created a disruption in this plan. And God, in response to this, as we read in Genesis chapter 3, he promises to overcome the ravages of sin, the consequences of sin in our lives and within creation. He promises that he is going to restore it all, make it all new again. And the Bible is a record of all that God has done in pursuit of that promise, of all that God is doing, of all that God will do to fulfill this promise. He has promised to bless his people and his creation by redeeming us and making this world new again without the presence and the devastation of sin. And so with verse three, this is what's in mind when he uses the word blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What is God up to? What is the big picture? It's right here. He intends to make his people holy and blameless before him in love, verse 4 tells us. He intends to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth, things seen and things unseen, to unite them all in Jesus who is now making everything new. That is the big picture. And we start right there. J.I. Packer, who has written one of the best books on evangelism and the sovereignty of God. It's a classic. It's a thin book. If you have not read J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, you must read it. It's a must read in Christian literature, right? And J.I. Packer says that the conversation about God's sovereignty and predestination and in salvation must be set within this overall context of God's redemptive plan. That when we come to this subject, if we divorce this truth from the grand context of this big picture, we will miss the blessing of this word, predestination. And our perspective and our thinking and our focus will become more and more on ourselves instead of on the awesomeness of God. 
and his immutability and his inscrutability and the mysteriousness of God. If we don't keep the big picture in mind, teaching about predestination and conversations and discussions about it become no more than just useless intellectual exercises like trying to determine how many angels can stand on the pen of a needle. Okay, that's what ends up happening. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, our understanding of predestination must be placed against this larger grand picture that the Bible gives us. This picture that says God has been in control of everything up to this point and he will exert his control and his sovereignty so that his grand redemptive plan will come about exactly as he has intended, that his sovereignty will not be thwarted, that he will come to his creation and to his people, and he will restore us, he will restore this universe, he will overcome the devastations of sin, and he will make us all new in Jesus Christ, and so we shall ever be with our heavenly father for eternity. He is going to bring this about. Nothing, church, no one, not Satan, not an unbeliever, not a man of sin, nothing and no one can stop this plan. It is sovereign, it is absolute. Now left to ourselves and our natural desires, every one of us, would live in such a way as to oppose this grand plan. Every one of us left to ourselves would oppose God's eternal plan. We would reject his redemptive plan. We would fight against it. We would scoff at it. We would reject it if God leaves us to ourselves. And that's why this word predestination is so wonderful. Predestination is God saving us despite ourselves. It is God intervening in our lives and rescuing us from the ravages of sin in spite of our love for that very sin. Predestination is an incredible, incredible picture of God's loving, sovereign grace. That's what God's up to. We gotta remember that. We gotta remember the big picture. Now let's move on to the mysterious decision. What is the basis for God's sovereign choice? This passage lays it out. Now before we get to the verses though, I've got to address a couple of objections that are so often brought up in these kinds of conversations. And and the reason why is because most of you, guarantee, you've been exposed to these objections, these ideas, and maybe in some way they have affected your understanding of the word predestination. And if I don't deconstruct them up front, then you're not gonna hear anything that I actually have to say about the biblical understanding of predestination, because in your mind you're gonna be going like, well, what about free will? And what about foreknowledge, you know? You see, these concepts have, have created confusion in the minds of God's people. So let's, do, let's, let's start with that word foreknowledge. The idea here is that, you know, let's, listen, everybody believes, in, every Christian believes in predestination, okay? You have to, it's in the Bible, okay? I mean, look, Romans chapter eight, verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, 
he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. You can't avoid the word. It's in the Bible, right? But how do you understand it? How do you qualify it? What framework do you put around it? Well, one of the common objections puts a framework that is dealing with this word foreknowledge or foreknew in Romans 8 verse 29. In other words, what is being said is that God chose us choosing us, electing us, predestination, those are all synonyms, all meaning the same thing, that yes, God chose us before the world began. He predestined us for salvation before the world began, but he did it according to his foreknowledge. And what is his foreknowledge? His foreknowledge is God choosing us because as he looked down time, he knew we were going to choose Jesus. So he looked down the corridors. God knows everything, right? Past, present, future, he knows everything. He saw that when you were presented with the gospel, you were gonna bow your head, you were gonna pray, you were gonna exercise faith, you were gonna believe the good news of Jesus Christ. He saw that you would ultimately do that. Therefore, he went ahead and chose you to be a part of his family. So God's choice is contingent upon our choice. His foreknowledge is him choosing based upon our choice. Church, this is, by the way, a massively, massively adopted idea within the American evangelical church, okay? It's the result of of teaching that came about beginning in the 1600s. Well, actually before that, it it actually began in the dark ages as the Roman Catholic church began to, to argue against what Augustine was teaching about the gospel. So in this kind of idea, God is a passive observer, and, 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 you know, I kind of appreciate the, the motive behind this. The motive behind this, in, in many respects, is to, to let God off the hook so that God isn't unfair. I mean, after all, if, if God, before the foundations of the world ever began, before eternity even starts, God says, you know what, I want this person and that person and this person and that person. I want them in my eternal family, and I am going to save them and he doesn't do that for other people, how's that fair? And so this is an effort to make God fair. God made his choice because of our choice. Therefore, God can't be blamed if somebody didn't choose. Well, that's on you, dude. Too bad, too sad. See you later, okay? That's where it comes from. But we don't make doctrine and we don't believe doctrine based off of philosophical arguments or because we wanna let God off the hook. The, the, the important phrase here is sola scriptura. Sola scriptura. What does the scriptures teach? And when we come to a word like foreknowledge in the Bible, we need to approach it from a linguistic standpoint. We need to say, what is that word? And, and, and what does it mean in its original context? That, that word foreknowledge is the Greek word. You know, we read an English translation. It was written when Paul wrote the letter of Romans. It was written in Greek. The Greek word is prognosko doesn't occur a whole lot in the New Testament, but what I can tell you is it does not mean foresight. In other words, that God looked down, he saw ahead of time, and therefore he made his choice. That's just a version of foresight. Foreknowledge is not foresight. The Bible doesn't teach that. Linguistically, the Bible doesn't allow for it. That is a philosophical argument, not a biblical truth. Instead, this is what you see. Uh, In fact, one of the people who used this word the most was the apostle Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, you see how this word should be used and what it actually means. 
Okay? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, he writes, Peter, an apostle to Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge, here's our word, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, blah, blah, blah. Okay? In other words, I'm writing to you who are the elect people of God. You are exiles in all of these countries. And why are you an elect of God? Because of his foreknowledge because of his foreknowledge. He's using our word, okay? But then in verse 20, he uses it again. And when an author uses the same word in the same book, he, he has a meaning. It doesn't mean A and then all of a sudden Z, right? That's, that's, not, that's not good writing, it's illogical. In verse 20, here's what you read. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Same word, noun in verse two, verb in verse 20. And it clearly, clearly does not mean foresight in verse 20. Therefore, it cannot mean foresight in verse two. Okay, if you go back to verse two, if all we had was verse two, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, there's nothing there that would say, okay, it can't be foresight. Maybe they're right, maybe not, we don't know. That ver- there's not enough clarity there. But verse 20 is the ver- ver- verse that gives us the clarity that we need. In other words, did God look down the corridors of time and say, see that one day, Jesus was going to bail on heaven, come down to earth, take on flesh, live the life that we are to live, be crucified and die and be resurrected and ascend back to him. And God saw that all that was going to happen. So therefore he chose to make his plan be that Jesus would leave heaven, take on uh, flesh, die, be buried, rise again and ascend back to heaven. Is that what he, is that, was that the basis of God's choice and the redemptive plan to send Jesus to earth to live, die, be buried, resurrected, and ascended? Was the basis of it that he saw that Jesus was going to do that? Or was the basis of it that he foreordained that Jesus would do this? See, the word foreknowledge does not mean foresight. In the scriptures, that word knowledge as it, or foreknowledge in relation to God means either that he has decided ahead of time to put his redemptive love upon someone or it means that he has foreordained that something would happen. If you go back to verse two, right? When he's talking about you are the elect of God according to his foreknowledge, it's very uh, legitimate to read this as saying, God decided ahead of time to put his redemptive love upon you and he foreordained your salvation. Perfectly legitimate. That's a great understanding of foreknowledge. But in verse 20, It's not legitimate to say that God decided ahead of time to put his redemptive love upon Jesus. Jesus doesn't need God's redemptive love because Jesus is not a sinner. Instead, verse 20 is God foreordained something would happen, that Jesus would come, die, be buried, rise again, and that all who would believe in him would also be resurrected from the dead as his sons and daughters. Foreordained plan of God. You see it in 1 Peter. Peter loves this word. 
He uses it again in Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This Jesus, he's preaching this sermon to the very people who crucified Jesus. The day of Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Is he saying here that this Jesus was delivered up to you by God because he looked down time and he saw that you were going to crucify him? So therefore, he made a plan that had you crucifying Jesus? No. You see, definite plan and foreknowledge are synonyms. If you want to know what foreknowledge means, look at the previous words. Definite plan. The word foreknowledge is not foresight. It's foreordination. It's foreordaining something. God's predestinating choice is not based upon and contingent upon our actions. It's dependent upon his foreordained plan to express his redemptive love to those who he would choose before the foundations of the world. Another objection, another objection is that the the predestination violates our free will. Free will. Hey, listen, Spend some time next time you're watching TV or over the next couple of months as you watch TV, you listen to commentators, you'll be surprised how many times the words free will and the concepts of free will come into the conversation. And, and basically the objection goes along these lines that God, with, with, if, if predestination is not based upon foresight, then God is forcing people to do something that they may not want to do. God is forcing people to accept Jesus when they don't want to accept Jesus, and that violates our free will, okay? What is free will? Free will, a common definition of free will, is the ability to make choices according to our desires. Our ability to make choices according to our desires. And I I wouldn't argue with that definition. It's a good definition. It's our ability to make choices according to our desires. That's not where the controversy begins. The controversy begins and the objections to this begin with a common opinion that is attached to this definition. The common opinion basically says this, every one of us are born with a neutral free will. We all have the natural ability and the moral ability to make righteous choices And we have the natural ability and the moral ability to make sinful, unrighteous choices. So predestination is violating my free will. How? Because God is removing my ability to freely make a choice of rejecting Jesus, and he's forcing me to make a choice, the righteous choice of accepting him. He's taking away my choice to reject Jesus. Jesus. The, the, the issue with this and the, where it's flawed, seriously flawed, is in the presupposition of that common opinion. The presupposition is that we have the moral ability, the spiritual ability to make righteous choices on our own. That all of us are born with this moral ability, this spiritual ability to, to make the good, righteous choice to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. That's the flaw because that presupposition is wrong. We are not born that way. We don't have that moral ability. We are unable to not sin. We are incapable of making a righteous choice. We don't have the moral ability to please God, to seek after Jesus, to receive him as our Lord and Savior. We are not born with this natural moral ability. We have the natural ability 
as a human being to freely receive and accept Jesus Christ, to choose to believe in him. God is not stopping anyone from choosing Christ. We all have that natural ability, that natural freedom as part of our will. What we don't have is the moral ability. We are simply incapable of choosing him. And the reason why we do not choose him is because we don't have the desire to choose him. We are not born with the desire to please God, to seek God, and to trust in Jesus Christ. Sin has ruined that. That's the consequences of original sin. We don't have that moral ability, church. No human being does. We're all in need of rescuing because of this. We can't choose him. Listen to what Jesus says. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. No one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. Look, R.C. Sproul has a great illustration attached to this verse, one that many of us can relate to. Remember when you were in school, maybe elementary school, your first grade, you know? Mrs. Smith, can I sharpen my pencil, please? You ever ask your teacher that, right? Can I sharpen my pencil? And, and if your teacher was anything like my, you know, sarcastic teachers, she, she would smile at you and go, yes, you can, but you may not do that right now. You ever had your teacher say that? I'm sure you can, but you may not do it. What was she saying? She was saying, You have, yes, Jerry, you have the ability to sharpen the pencil. You have the necessary, you know, coordination and everything else. Yes, you have that ability to sharpen your pencil, but you do not have my permission to sharpen your pencil. Got it? It wasn't a matter of can, it was a matter of may. Go back to this verse. This is why I told you that no one can come to me. Jesus doesn't use the word may, The issue here is not one of permission. The issue here is not one of liberty. Everybody is free to come to Christ and believe in him. They have that permission to do so. The issue here is can. They don't have the ability to do it. This is so important. We are free preachers. We are free creatures. We do exactly what we want to do. We fulfill all of our desires if we is all possible. And as natural human beings, unless God intervenes in our lives, our desire is always to reject Jesus and the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's our natural desire. And that's the choices we make. And this will continue unless God intervenes. Unless he rescues us and he changes our desires, we will always choose to rebel and act out against God. Predestination is God's decision to intervene and save us despite ourselves. It is the decision that he made before time began in past eternity, not based on our choice of Jesus, but based upon his criteria and his desires. It is his decision to give a new heart to those who he has chosen to be his sons and daughters. And that new heart creates new desires, the desire to receive Jesus Christ. And in turn, we exercise that free will in line with those new desires that God has planted inside of us. We do exactly what we want to do. We now want Jesus. If you want to know what predestination is, it is God deciding ahead of time to change your wanter. 
He changed your wanter, and now out of that new wanter, you make different choices freely and of your own will. So why? What's the basis for God giving a new wanter to some people and not others? Well, verse 4 says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God, first of all, again, that big picture, God has purposed to fill the earth with people who are recreated in his image, an image that is holy and blameless. That's what he's up to. Don't forget that this is his purpose. He's choosing people who will reflect who he is to fill the earth up. And then another reason, a basis for his decision, in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. What is behind God's providential predestinating grace? It is not God as some... um, dispassionate robot with no emotional involvement, no care saying, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, touch a tiger by his toe. That, that is not what's going, it's not some dispassionate choice. It is a choice of love. He says, what, what is the basis for me choosing you? My love. God is love. And his sovereign grace given to sinners exemplifies this love. And then finally, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Why? What's the basis for God's choice? If you really want to boil it down, it's this right here. God is jealous for his glory. And he will be glorified and he will be praised by his creation. And if you cast forward and imagine in the future, when that day of judgment comes, and all who have received God's saving grace because of his sovereignty and his predestinating choosing election that takes place before time, and you take all those people and they're over here, they have received grace from God, And as they look and they see the mass of humanity who do not receive grace, instead they receive justice. Because God is also just and holy. And he can give grace to whom he wants to give grace. But everybody gets justice. Those who get grace, the justice has been applied to Jesus Christ in their place. God's justice is now being satisfied against the backdrop of the mass of humanity who will face God's judgment. What do you think the response of those who receive God's grace will be? He gives us a picture of it. We fall at his feet and for eternity we are involved in enjoying him and praising him and worshiping him and giving him the glory that he is due because he did not owe a single one of us salvation. We were owed justice. He gave us grace because he poured out his justice on Jesus for our sake. All right. How is this even practical? What difference does it make in our lives? Why should we rejoice in this truth? Why should we? Verse 11, as we close out, verses 11 to 14 give us several reasons. In him, 
we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The first practical benefit of predestination and understanding it the way it's presented here is that it absolutely smashes and crushes any reason for pride in our lives. It crushes our pride. It encourages humility instead of pride, faith instead of self-reliance. We are where we are, as this passage says, because God is acting in our lives despite our natural selves, and he's doing so in accordance with his grand plan. And every one of us has to fall in humility and say, the grace I've gotten from God, I do not deserve. There is no difference between us and the vilest of the vile of the vilest and the vile sinners that ever walked the earth. All of us are guilty of treason against God. None of us are worthy of his grace. And predestination reminds us that the only reason why we're in the family of God and the kingdom of God is that God according to his mysterious will, said, I'm going to give Laura a new wanter. I'm going to give Chris a new wanter. I'm going to make him my son. Why? Because he wanted to. It glorified him. Not because of us. It crushes our pride. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Secondly, It fosters the awe of God and a heartfelt response of worship. If you find your heart growing cold towards Christ, if you find in your life worship becoming a drudgery, right? Meditate on God's sovereign grace given to you in salvation and in predestination. Meditating on what Jesus has done for us and what God has done from even before the foundations of time, that will thaw the the coldest heart. It will ignite the most lukewarm heart when we meditate on the grandeur and the beauty of Jesus' sacrifice that came about because God planned it before the world ever even began. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Final, practical application. Why, what difference does this thing make? Predestination, understanding predestination emboldens and empowers us to serve God and to spread the gospel free of the fear of rejection and failure. We are his. We will always be his. He has drawn us to Jesus. He's given us the ability and he brings us into his family. He says, you are now my sons and daughters and even the sin that you commit going forward to the last breath that you take, those sins will not separate you from my love. They will not separate you from my family. They will not violate my eternal plan that I have for your life. No one can thwart God's plan, even you in your sin, Christian. And this is not to give you license to sin, to say, well, I can't blow it. Let's party on. No, not at all. But the truth is, we all sin regularly. 
And isn't it wonderful that we cannot sin our way out of the family of God? That Jesus has already paid for every one of those sins. And predestination, it gives us this assurance, the sign of which is the Holy Spirit, God himself, now living inside of us, working out his plan to conform us to Jesus Christ. Remember, predestination is God saving us from ourselves. It's not only saving us from the eternal punishment of sin, it's also sanctifying us from the current presentation of sin in our lives. We are predestined to be saved, we are predestined to be sanctified, and God is not going to fail in us. He's not gonna fail in our lives, he's not gonna fail in the lives of the people that he's gonna bring into the kingdom through our serving of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not gonna fail them, he's not gonna fail us. It's all going to work out exactly according to his sovereign plan. He won't fail. How glorious is our God? Why would we ever be afraid? What do we have to be afraid of? Why should we hesitate to give an answer for the hope that resides within us? Why should we ever be afraid to tell someone about Jesus Christ? All of that fear, all of that nervousness, all of those hesitations that we have, all of those, when we see them through the lens of God's sovereignty and predestination, quickly become just absurdities. There's no reason to ever be afraid of failing because God is in control of it all. The person that we're talking to, that God brings to your way, here's, here's the good news. Man, this is so freeing. You have people in your circle you don't know who's been chosen by God and who hasn't, none of us do, right? We're just told to tell them. And here's the glorious thing about it. If that person has been chosen by God to come into his family, you can totally mess up the entire presentation. You can stutter and you can blah, 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 blah. You can get verses out of, you can just, you'll walk away from it sometimes thinking, that was pathetic. And for something between your pathetic mouth and their needy ear, God does a miracle and it's exactly what they need to hear and they trust in Jesus Christ. How cool is that? And why is that the case? Because church, salvation is of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you. <laughs> thank you that you did not leave our salvation up to the skill of another human being. <laughs> Thank you that you are so sovereign, that you superintended all, that you work through flawed vessels like us. And you bring people to life. And you bring us brothers and sisters, and you do it through, through a group of people who have all kinds of problems and sin and damage and dysfunction and idiocy and peccadillo, I mean, all kinds of junk. And yet you work out your plan in our lives, and then you work through us for the benefit and the blessing of others. God, we don't get any credit for this. This is just you. We thank you. We thank you that we've been the recipients of it. We thank you that we get to participate in it for the benefit of others. Would you make our church covenant a church, a church that is humbly, rejoicingly involved in this great redemptive plan that you're bringing to fruition. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.